Microbial Nation, and welcome to another episode of The Micro Moment, that show that takes you down to the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. I'm your host, Tess. And I'm John. And today we continue our series in bioterrorism. Specifically today we are dealing with World War I and World War II and the heinous bioterrorist acts that occurred during this period. We will start talking about... We interrupt this program to bring you a special bulletin. Hello, Microbial Nation. We are here to bring you a very special bulletin, a very special podcast on penicillin. That's right, we're wrapping back around to penicillin. If you've been with us for a little bit, you know that we have a part one and a part two on penicillin. But we actually have some historical moments this year, and we thought maybe we would revisit it, remaster it, kind of redo it, because we're going to talk about this in a little bit different of a way than we did last time. So what are the special occasions that we have this year? First of all, we are recording this on August 6th, which is Alexander Fleming's birthday. So you may not be hearing this on his birthday, but... We are recording it on his birthday. He was born in 1881 in Scotland. It's also 2023, which means that we are celebrating the 80th anniversary from when Moldy Mary found the penicillium strain that became the predecessor of all penicillin today. So we thought we would revisit this topic and give you a little bit more information, particularly on the second half of the story. In 2021, we did part one and part two of this. We focused primarily on Alexander Fleming. But now we are going to focus more on Flory and Heatley and Boris Chain and Moldy Mary and some of the American contributions to this whole thing as well. Well, I can't believe it's only been 80 years. I mean, we grew up with penicillin, so... I think just it feels like it was around for over 100 years. Yeah, it definitely seems like something that we've known for a long time. And yet, no, we're only 80 years from We're also only 80 years from World War II. Wow, that doesn't sound like a long period of time at all. Yeah, so if you think that you don't care about penicillin, you probably do because you probably would not be alive. And if you, perchance, actually made it to this far in your life without penicillin, not everyone in your life would have, this antibiotic, this discovery drastically changed medical microbiology and really started to allow people to gain an upper hand on the fight against pathogens. Yeah, right. Like before we had, what, sulfur drugs, which weren't that effective? And arsenic and mercury and leeches. Yeah. So like some of them worked, but it was also like, we're going to try to kill the microbe but not kill you, which was easier said than done with with these treatments. But penicillin definitely changed that. Right. So if you care to join us for this little one, we will be bringing back bioterrorism in the next couple of weeks. And we will be focusing on the same time period that we are looking at with the discovery of penicillin. But we did think it was sort of important to bring you this aspect here today. We are drinking today, of course, penicillin, which is a drink that doesn't actually have penicillin in it, but it is made up of scotch, lemon, honey, and ginger syrup. So I'm not really sure how it got its name, penicillin, but the scotch makes me think of Alexander Fleming because he was Scottish. I think that's a good enough association. Yeah, close enough. And plus, honey, lemon, and ginger have some very low-grade antimicrobial effects. Yep. But you probably should have penicillin over giving yourself lemon, honey, and ginger. Mm, probably. When when it's necessary. Make sure it's for the right organism. Exactly. 
So we will begin talking about Alexander Fleming and move into the whole history of this very crazy discovery. I'm always just so amazed that this even happened because there are so many instances where it should have fell and no one to pick it up and never discovered. And yet somehow all these people from across the world were able to come together, focus on this enough and overcome all the accidents, the obstacles, all the points of people telling them not to go any further and to change the world. It really is incredible. Yeah, there there really were so many points in this uh, journey that could have caused the whole discovery and development of penicillin to just fail. Yeah, so let's get into it. As we said, Alexander Fleming is born on August 6, 1881 in Scotland. He was not a very wealthy man and he worked in a shipping office for four years, but tragedy would strike and he would end up inheriting some money from an uncle who recently died. This money was enough to fund him to go to St. Mary's Medical School, where he remained for most of his life, not something we see very often today. He was a student, researcher, lecturer, and professor, and he originally wanted to leave St. Mary's at one point and become a surgeon, go into more medical than research. But the science gods would never allow it. It turns out that Fleming had become a highly valued member of St. Mary's Medical School, but not for the reasons you may think. He was a good shot. So he became the captain of the Rifle Club, and it was a rifle club that originally allowed Fleming or uh, invited Fleming to stay at St. Mary's Medical Hospital and not to pursue becoming a surgeon. While at St. Mary's, he did a number of different studies, one of which his first major discovery that we still talk about today is lysozymes. Lysozymes have a very weak antimicrobial. Lyso means dissolving and zyme means enzyme. So it's an enzyme which dissolves or so that's why they named it back in the day. These enzymes are found in many different fluids of your body, including your tears, sweat, and saliva. They have weak antibacterial properties, not enough to stop an infectious disease, but it was something at the time for sure. And this kind of happened during the World War I period. And if we fast forward to 1928, we come to the infamous story when Fleming forgot about a Petri dish at the time where he went on his holiday, as the Europeans do, and a mold contaminant came into his Petri dish. I was going to say, like, I think we've all been there. We've all forgotten about at least one Petri dish before a long weekend or a holiday. Oh, 100%. And this so happened to be a really fantastic time to forget about it because on his petri dish was penicillium notatum. It was even more powerful than the lysozymes. In fact, it had antibacterial properties on way more bacterial species as well than the lysozymes. He published his results in 1929 in the British Journal of Experimental Pathology. However, he wasn't able to isolate the mold juice, and the scientific community wasn't that ecstatic about the whole thing. Fleming was known to say, I play with microbes. There are, of course, many rules to this play, but when you have acquired knowledge and experience, it is very pleasant to break rules, the rules, and to be able to find something that nobody has thought of. Which I think kind of goes along with, if you find work you love, you never work a day in your life. Which is how I feel about microbiology, too. Yeah, like... Just getting a sense of his history, he seemed to really enjoy it, and at least my interpretation is it didn't really stress him out. He seemed to just love it. I think he was just one of those like super chill kind of people. Yeah, he does come off as that. 
So as we said in his 1929 paper on penicillin, it was called On the Antibacterial Action of Cultures of a Penicillium with Special Reference to Their Use in the Isolation of Bee Influenza, which is kind of right on the nose of what he's going to talk about. And so here are a couple of things that I have pulled out of that particular paper. It was noticed that around a large colony of a contaminated mole, the Staphylococcus colonies became transparent and were obviously undergoing lysis. A number of other molds were grown in broth at room temperature, and the culture fluids were tested for antibacterial substances at various intervals up to one month. Of these, it was found that only one strain of penicillium reduced any inhibitory substances, and that one had exactly the same cultural characteristics as the original one from the contaminated plate. It is clear, therefore, that the production of this antibacterial is not coming among the molds, but is specific to the mold strain that he had on his contaminated plate. I found this paper so interesting in the fact that he basically said this is an antibiotic, it's super powerful, like, it's great. And for some reason, this was not something that the rest of the scientific community latched on at the time. And it basically went dormant for about 10 years. It seems to be a trend that pops up every now and then in science. Like going back even further, discovery that uh, vibrio cholera caused cholera came from someone in Italy. But it wasn't until the 1960s where he got accreditation for it. Yeah. You never know what you're going to find in some of these old papers, I think. But just to go back even further back in time to 1889, there was Jean-Paul Wuhlemann, who also wrote a paper on antibiosis and symbiosis. And he wrote, No one considers the lion which leaps upon its prey to be a parasite, nor the snake which injects venom into the wound of its victim before eating it. Here there is nothing equivocal. One creature destroys the life of another to preserve its own. The one is incomplete opposition to the life of the other. The conception is so simple that no one has ever thought of giving it a name. Which I think is so interesting because that is exactly what pathogens do, what bacteria and fungal do, what microbiology is doing, what we all do to survive. Often you have to kill something else, but only in microbiology do we villainize this survival tactic and name them something different, which we call pathogens. Yeah, I agree. And even... In the macro scale, I mean, we villainize sharks a lot as an example, but, you know, they're just hungry. Yeah. They're just trying to survive, just like microbes. Right. So we'll move on to the 1930s, the late 1930s and into the 40s, where we get a different set of characters away from Alexander Fleming. We're going to talk about Flory, Heatley, and Chain. John, do you want to talk a little bit about who Flory was? Sure. So Howard Florey was the head of the research team at Oxford that was able to isolate and manufacture penicillin. He was born in Australia on September 24th, 1898, and being the young brother of four older sisters, he learned quite a bit about patience, communication, and getting along with others, all traits I attribute to his penicillin legacy. So Florey, like Fleming, also wanted to go to the medical school. And like Fleming, did not go to medical school because of a sport. For Fleming, it was the rifle club like you had mentioned. For Flory, it was tennis and academics that granted him a prestigious Rhodes Scholarship to Oxford. I feel like I don't know any scientists who are into um, sports as much as what we're seeing in the 1940s. Yeah. No, like, hmm. Out of everyone I know, I would say one person I know is into sports. Yeah. 
And Flory was later the recipient of a Rockefeller Foundation Fellowship, where he worked with Alfred Newton Richards in America. Keeping these American connections would be important to the success of penicillin. So important. So now we have Scotland, we have Australia, we have America. Where else are we going to go? Germany, for sure. Yeah, maybe Britain. Probably Britain. I mean, we're already in Britain, I guess. Okay, yeah. (laughs) So one little anecdote or little quote that I've read that I think is really interesting on Flory becoming a professor of pathology at the Sheffield University is he said his electors gave him only one instruction. They said, we don't care what you do as long as you make a mess in this laboratory. It's been too clean for a number of years. Sounds like awesome advice. (laughs) I don't think that's anything I've ever heard in a lab ever. Someone could just hire me and be like, make a mess of this. I'd be like, all right, you got it, boss. Take this culture bottle and spray it all over the place. (laughs) Exactly. So Flory also said that people sometimes think that I and the others worked on penicillin because we were interested in the suffering of humanity. I don't think it ever crossed our minds, which I also think is so interesting that they were almost not thinking of this as something that was going to radically change medicine. They were just really interested in researching it. Yeah, considering like how many people died of infections a year, like that is surprising. It never crossed his mind. So we're going to jump ahead a little bit after Flory and Shane kind of got together and they started to do some simple experiments on penicillin, which again, they found based on Alexander Fleming's 1928 or 29 paper. And they were able to get the strain of this penicillin because Alexander Fleming actually shipped it all over the world to a whole bunch of people. And just in case anyone was interested. So they actually had one. It was Dryers, who was, I believe, the predecessor of Flory. So he was in the same position that Flory was, at least in the same school. He received one of the strains from Fleming. And uh, Dryers actually didn't care that much about it. Dryers was very interested in phage. And when he found out penicillin notatum was a fungus, he was like not interested. But his assistant, Margaret Campbell Renton, kept the culture alive for a decade until Florian Chain came in and decided they wanted to study this little microbe. So before we get too much further, do we want to talk about Chain now? Sure. Let's talk about Ernest Bors Chain. So surprisingly, he's described as volatile, confident, and was forever and at odds with Flory, his supervisor, which I found surprising. Like today, when you get in fights with someone, it ends a relationship. But it does seem back in the day, there's a little bit more forgiveness and a little bit more understanding about having different opinions. Maybe a little bit more logical, too. Yes. I think they did not get along, but they both believed in each other's brilliance. Which probably helped a lot in this instance. Mm -hmm. So Chain was a second-generation chemist who was involved in isolating penicillin. Being of Russian-German-Jewish descent, he decided to get out of Berlin in 1933 before the Nazis came. He was smart to do so and moved to England. Unfortunately, he left the mother and his sister behind, and they did not survive the Holocaust. Ernest Chain was a man of many talents, 
and when it came to picking his career track in England, he debated between scientist and professional pianist, ultimately going with scientist. I feel like that's very... Why are all these people so talented? I know, like, it's very separate. Like, I'm either going to be a musician or a scientist. Could be a world-renowned concert pianist, or it could be a world-renowned chemist. What's it going to be? Guess I'll go with science. The choices, the choices. I wish I had choices like that. Me too. I'm just a lab rat. <laughs> That's what I'm good at. Hey, that kind of rhymed. Should we talk a little bit about lab rat? Let us talk us a little bit about lab rats. So as Flory and Shane began their research into penicillin, the first thing that they tested was what would happen if you, well, not the first thing, because they did a whole bunch of experiments on plates and everything, testing out the antibacterial properties. But the next thing they wanted to do was test this in vivo. And they chose mice to do this experiment. So they had eight mice for which they tested it on. They were having a very difficult time creating enough penicillin, enough mold juice, as they became known to actually inject this into even a mouse, which is a lot smaller units needed than for humans. They injected four mice with the antibiotic, with penicillin, with the mold juice. I guess not really an antibiotic at this time. And four of them were the controls. So each of the pairs, the controls and the ones with antibiotics also got a lethal dose of Streptococcus hemolyticus. They looked 24 hours later to see if all if all the mice were dead, then obviously this mold juice was not helping the mice. To their great amusement and glee, I'm sure, the controls were all dead and the mice inoculated with the mold juice with penicillin were alive. And Flory said, it looks like a miracle. And this was May 26, 1940. And what's interesting is May 27, 1940 was also a major turn in World War II. Do you know what happened? Oh, I feel like people are going to scream at me, but I do not remember. My history is not that great. They recently made a movie about the situation. 1940, May. Uh, it involved a number of civilians. Oh, is that... um? <sighs> I know. It's like you just died. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a Christopher Nolan movie, and I can't remember what it is. Dunkirk. Oh, yeah, Dunkirk, Dunkirk. The fear of invasion of Britain was a real possibility. And so this is happening while these scientists are doing this groundbreaking work, this work that is going to change all of humanity. While outside, they know that all of humanity, all of history is also be written and changing because of this war. All the British scientists whose research could help the Nazis knew they would have to destroy their work at any given point. So they're doing all this research, but they also know that they need to keep it away from the enemies of their country at the time. So they came up with an idea. If they needed to do any emergency evacuation of their lab, what they would do, Flory and Chain, would be to rub some spores of the mold onto the fabrics of their coats and destroy everything else. And because they rubbed it into their coats, no one would understand that they're there. But penicillium is pretty resilient and can survive some time in that area. So they would be able to re-extract the penicillium from their coats as they got to a safer location to continue to conduct their research. That's really smart. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. That's like spy kind of stuff. Oh, there's some more spy stuff in here. Oh, yeah? Yeah, including as they were scientists, they were expert sportsmen, they were pianists, and they were definitely secret agents. 
Ooh, I can't wait to hear that. So in 1941, Chain and Flory had heated debates over whether or not to patent penicillin. Chain was, of course, let's patent it. And Flory thought the people have paid for this work, their work that they were doing at the university, and they should have the benefits made freely available to them. Which Chain, being a Jewish-German immigrant working in Oxford, said, quite apart from the economic considerations, in my view, it was unethical in respect to the people of Britain and those of other countries not to protect a discovery of this magnitude, for it would then be free for exploitations from unscrupulous groups, for which the Americans come in, because capitalism. Okay, so I think I see both sides here. Like they both want to help humanity. One wants to make it free so that everyone can benefit from it. And the other one wants to make sure that American pharmaceuticals don't patent in and then raise the prices to extraordinary levels so that no one can have access to it. I mean, yes, but the other one, it sounds like he does want to patent it, but to make sure that to protect it. Yeah, to protect it. So say like the Nazis couldn't get their hands on it. And develop it. I mean, that's my interpretation of it. Yeah. So I think you can see both sides of those stories, and you can kind of see a little bit about the men, uh, who Flory was and who Chain was, based on those two different quotes. So from 1940 to 1941, those discussions are happening. We have World War II happening all the time. And the team was trying desperately to produce penicillin. In this 18-month period from 1940 to 1941, they treated just six patients. And we'll get into a little bit about the different patients that they treated and what ailed them and whether or not they survived. So in, in the course of this 18th month with these six patients, the Oxford team was able to produce 4 million units of penicillin. Do you know what the daily dose for one person is today? Of penicillin? Mm-hmm. Honestly, I have no idea. It's about 4 million units. Oh, so they had enough to treat one person. For one day. A single, okay, a single daily treatment. And this is all they had for 18 months. So the production, getting the production up was something they knew needed to happen for this to be of any use. After the mouse experiment and as they were sort of thinking about how we can use this for clinical settings or, or to help save lives, they learned that penicillin had no harm to people. So Flory began to self-administer the mold for his own ailments, treating topical ailments like conjunctivitis. He even gargled the mold juice, which sounds incredibly disgusting, to rid himself of a streptococcal infection. He said it worked, but he also t- said it tasted foul. I can imagine. It did not taste good. I mean, I love fungus. I love mushrooms. I love penicillin. I'm not gargling mold juice. No. No. I don't even know if I could, like, look at it and then put it in my mouth. Like, gargling is like, it stays in your mouth for a time. And you have to make that noise that just lets it circulate in your mouth until you decide to spit it out. What if it was known for something other than mold juice? Do you think that would help a little bit? I don't. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe mold juice is kind of a disgusting. It's word. Uh, yeah. That that already sets something in your mind. Yeah, I think so. But I don't know. That seems like a lot. And I can't imagine the color of it was anything other than a disgustingly brown green kind of cloudy concoction. Mmm. This sounds delightful. Yeah. Like maybe if it was clear. Maybe, but I'm, I'm guessing it was not. I don't know. I don't know if it was clear or not. 
But he did gargle it, which, I mean, talk about doing experiments on yourself. Not the worst experiment we've heard scientists do to themselves, but um, it's up there. Very true. Mm -hmm. In July 1941, Flory and Heatley go to America, and this is a big turning point for them as well. And this is another moment where we're going to learn a little bit about the secrecy that had to occur for to get them to America. The plane went from Britain to Lisbon, and all the windows were blackout. They were in this plane where they couldn't see outside of the window. So they didn't know where they were going. Only the pilot knew where they were going, and they couldn't see anything. They spent a few days in Lisbon, which was a real paradise compared to the curtain situation they had in Oxford, where a lot of the city was destroyed, was in various stages of destruction, where they had immense amount of rations over their food and um, things that they could consume. So they really enjoyed this time in Lisbon, but they also felt very guilty about having all of this stuff in excess, excess while the people that they knew back in Oxford were in complete fear all the time. But their work was important and they needed to go. So their Pan Am plane uh, jumped them over the pond after Lisbon and to America, which was also quite luxurious compared to what they found in uh, Lisbon, which was luxurious compared to what they had in Oxford at that time. Both Flory and Heatley, after the whole ordeal and this very secret excursion to America, were very impressed and happy as they landed in New York. And even though it was very hot and humid, America has air conditioning and Europe still does not. (laughs) But you guys are getting there. One day, one day you guys will have air conditioning. Simple pleasures. Yeah. Thanks to global warming. Because of this time in America in the 1920s, remember when we were talking about Flory and his Rockefeller Research Grant, Flory had many connections in the New York area, including the Fultons. And the Fultons, I think, are very interesting unsung heroes of this whole ordeal. The Fultons were researchers, or at least the... um, The husband of the two was a researcher, and he had a lot of connections in America. But furthermore, Flory and his wife decided, as so many parents did during World War II, to send their kids to America to be taken care of by other people to get them out of the war. And it would be the Fultons who took care of Flory's kids. So their relationship was pretty tight, and they had a number of different collaborations that they had throughout the years, including co-parenting, I guess. So they would strike up another collaboration with the National Regional Research Laboratory in Peoria, Illinois. This was a massive research facility. They worked specifically with Dr. Moyer, who was well-versed in mycology, but also was um, a little not so happy to be working with the Brits. And a German. He was not an overly nice man from all I could see either, but he did work with them to some degree to help with this discovery that they all found to be very interesting, which is like just another reason like you have all these men who kind of didn't like each other and somehow were able to overcome that for this medical discovery. And I feel like today if that happened, everyone would just leave and go try to do it on their own. And then everyone's competing with each other. Yeah. I would say so. Yeah. Did they ever say, like, why he didn't like Brits? He believed that the British were manipulating the U.S. to enter the war, and he really did not 
want to enter the war. He didn't think it was America's place to enter the war, which was a large sentiment of the American people during 1941, up until when Pearl Harbor happened, which was 42. Yeah, December 42, I believe. No, not many people in America wanted to go to this war. Um, And he believed that the Brits and the other members in the war in Europe were really hoping America would come in and sort of help them out. And so there was a a great tension between the two nations. Sorry, it was December 1941. So we're right at the point where it's about to happen. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we're July 1941. So it'd be another five or six months before the tragedy of Pearl Harbor. Regardless, Heatley, which we haven't talked about Heatley yet, so we didn't get a little bit in heat. Heatley is another one where I think he is an unsung hero of this whole thing. He did a tremendous amount of work. He was not a doctor. I don't even know what level of education he was, but he was a jack of all trades. He was a handyman. He looked at things and said, I can build something that's going to make that easier. And he would do it. And a lot of those things are how they made big leaps in the discovery on how to increase production of penicillin and how to better extract penicillin from the mold itself. Yeah, so Norman Healy, he actually was a doctor. Oh, he was. Okay. I'm sorry, Norman Healy. Uh, he, was much qu- uh, he was a much quieter person, but he was still an influential character to the development of penicillin. Very influential. He was... What they called the bedpan man. He was the bedpan man. He used a number of creative resources to grow penicillin, despite the short supplies brought on by World War II. He developed a crude but usable technique for isolating penicillin, and this produced a very small amount of penicillin that could never be mass-produced, but it was a start. Isn't he the guy that, like... He would have, like, people come and try to, like, grow penicillin on whatever they could find. And there was kind of, like, parties of just, like, growing penicillin, quote-unquote. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So he was, uh, well, it was him, Chain, and Flory who worked together who ended up eventually getting the penicillin girls, which I I think believe it was six girls who were part of that. So one thing that they tried in America, which... They tried on just about everything in Illinois, which uh, or in Indiana, which um, can you guess what they tried to grow microbes in in Indiana? What does Indiana got going for it? Corn? Corn. Oh, my God. <laughs> they would grow the mold in corn steep liquor, which was something they did not have in Britain where they didn't grow corn that often. So this is sort of a new technique and one of the advantages of going over to America And corn-steep liquor, which is rich in nitrogen, promotes the growth of many microbes. So this was not something that they developed specifically for penicillin, but something that they've already been trying in America. And so they're like, well, let's give it a shot. During his time in America, Flory would give a great many talks to the government and industry and other officials, hoping to stir up a little bit of excitement and collaboration around penicillin. Most importantly, he was hoping to raise some funds to continue their research because that was a very difficult thing during the war to have any money go to research. Yeah. I mean, if it was a weapon, that's a different thing, but everything else kind of was left on the wayside. Yeah, and there were a handful of companies in America that did sort of start to collaborate and get excited over Flory's little 
penicillin project. Some of these you probably have heard of before. We, because they're pharmaceutical companies that have been in America for a long time and are still in America. We have Merck. We have ER Squibb and Sons. We have Charles Pfizer, uh, who all received talks by Flory, um, who got a little bit of knowledge about penicillin and got a little excited about what the possibilities were for this little mold. At this time in 1941, they could produce two units of penicillin per milliliter. A milliliter is quite small. Yeah, so let's see. And we already said you need four million yeah. for a day. So that's two million mLs to create enough for one person for one day? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, which is a lot. So in the course of the extraction process, they could lose up to 60% of this as well. So they weren't even getting two units per milliliter. Um, this is how much they knew that was in there. But upon extraction, you lose a little bit. Oh, you know, that's exactly what my next sentence was. This meant they needed 2,000 liters. You said 2 million. 2 million mLs, which is... Oh, 2,000 liters. Yeah. So they needed 2,000 liters of mold juice to treat just one case. That is a lot of liquid. Indeed. Eventually it became time for Flory to return back to Oxford in October of 1941, leaving behind Heatley, who would work continuously with the Americans. After three months, Heatley and the researchers at the NRL were losing interest and no great breakthroughs had been made. Heatley also did not get along very much with Dr. Moyer, I'm sure because Dr. Moyer was a little difficult with his biases towards Heatley, Flory, and Shane. Heatley told Flory in October they had a book full of data, but it was all negative. Not great. Flory told Heatley it was no better back at Oxford and everything seemed to be at a standstill. Everyone almost gave up on the whole thing. Everyone was very distracted with trying to keep their labs from burning down and fearing the Germans from bombing their whole city and uh, sending their children out to America. It is really amazing that they were able to focus on this at all in such trauma-inducing states. Yeah, and so passionately, too. Yeah. So Dr. Moyer was being quite secretive, and Heatley would eventually leave the lab over this and go work for Merck for a few months to see if they could make any progress. And then December 7th, 1941 happened, which was Pearl Harbor, the tragic event that pushed the Americans into the war and made Pellison all the more important to the Americans as well as the rest of the world. To the Americans, it was no longer a medicine to help some far-off allies, but a medicine to save their own troops going into battle. And so they could put more money into it, more research into it, and there's like a little bit more motivation in order to research this new drug. By early 1942, Heatley was working with Merck and Flory, and the Dunn School researchers were working with the Imperial Chemical Industries. With both parties collaborating with industry, this meant neither party could no longer collaborate with each other, which I think is really interesting. Really? Yeah, because, you know, you know industry secrets and you can't tell each other what, what's up. So they sort of split their academic researchers to work for two different industries. And they had to because the industries had better equipment. They had more money. Um, they had more resources than what Flory could get for his people at the Dunn School. Although Flory and Heatley still exchanged some letters back and forth during this time on strictly business basis. And I'm not really sure if any secrets leaked out during this time, but there 
probably was a little bit that they were able to shoot back and forth. I mean, I feel like they probably would have said something to each other. Yes. Because they they saw the importance of this. Mm-hmm. And, and they were, I think, you know, the academics were definitely in it for the betterment of humanity. I think, you know, Merck and the Imperial Chemical Industries was also into it for the betterment of humanity. But they also didn't want the other one to get there first. They wanted that for their own IP purposes. They wanted that patent. That makes sense. So in 1942, we bring on a new member to the penicillin team, which was actually a woman. Margaret Jennings, Flory's presumed mistress, became part of the research team in the beginning of 1942. In addition, in 1942, we get our six penicillin girls who were brought on after that to help grow the penicillin, which grew in hundreds of rectangular containers. These girls were Ruth Callow, Claire Inyet, Betty Cook, Peggy Gardner, Megan Lancaster, and Patricia McKegney. But in 1942, another woman could join the team, Ethel Flory, Flory's wife. The drama. Ooh. Working with both your wife and your mistress. How the hell did that work out? How have they not made this an HBO Max series? And I feel like it can get... Christopher Nolan on this. He just did Oppenheimer. I feel like this is... He, he loves the 40s. Yeah. We should call him up. I'll be your historian on that because I'm obsessed with this story now. Perfect. Yeah. Christopher Nolan, give me a call. I mean, yeah, it's got drama. It's got a love story. It's got war. It's got scientific discovery. It's got medical advancements. It's got all the things to be a movie at the very least. It really does. Yeah. Plus, you can intertwine it with Oppenheimer and some of that stuff. I don't know. There's just a lot here. A lot here. So, Ethel Flory was also trained in medicine in Australia. And she was pretty good at what she did. But she gave up medicine when she married Howard Flory. She hoped to one day get back into it as they settled down. But Howard Flory, they left Australia. Howard Flory got a job in Britain. And she decided to pursue other things, mostly, you know, motherhood. But she also was impaired by a number of ailments. She was not a very healthy person. She was hard of hearing, which made it very difficult for the Flores to communicate. Uh, And it caused a great strain on their relationship, as well as, you know, Howard being able to go out and pursue his career while Ethel had to give it up. That also, I'm sure, created some tension and um, drama within their relationship. But as they got into clinical trials, they needed someone to take it over. So Ethel Flory was finally allowed back into the lab and took over many of the clinical trials. She wrote, It is useless to apply penicillin unless the whole infected area can be reached. The penicillin girls did a great deal of work extracting the penicillin, but it did come at a great cost to those young girls. And once they noticed this cost, Flory took over much of the extraction. He wrote to Fulton, his friends in America, Having to do a good deal of the penicillin extracting myself, as I found that the girls and the technician who had done a lot of the work with amyl acetate were somewhat anemic and had indications of leukopoenia. It's an abnormal decrease in the number of white blood cells. Okay, that is not good. No. 
Uh, and so Flory took over a little bit of this extraction process to um, give the, the girls a break. They were young girls. They had their whole life in front of them. Many of them were in their teens, I believe, or early 20s. So they were of childbearing years, um, which was really important back in the 1940s. I also find it, I don't know if ironic's the right term. They're trying to develop something to help combat infections and you're lowering someone's immune system in the process making them more prone to infections yeah you know a lot of the things that we use in laboratories are not overly safe they are toxic and that's why ppe is so important but back in the day i don't know ppe was a huge thing yeah gloves were more of a if you feel like you want to use instead of you need to use it Mm. so this brings us to march 12 1942 where we get ann miller Ann Miller becomes America's first penicillin patient. So how it happened, Ann Miller was dying in a hospital bed. And in the next room was Fulton. Remember Fulton, our unsung hero of this whole thing, took care of Flory's kids, introduced him to Dr. Moyer at the NRL, and also introduced him to a number of other American collaborators in the New York area. So Fulton was in the next room. He had a viral infection, which can't be cured by penicillin, even if penicillin was around. Penicillin is just for bacteria. If you learn nothing else from this podcast, remember that. But I'm sure you do because you're a very smart cookie. But Ann Miller was dying of a bacterial infection and could be helped with penicillin. So Fulton's doctor, who was also the doctor of the lady next door, asked him if he could get any penicillin for her. And he made a few calls, actually more than a few calls, as no one really knew who could authorize the release of this drug at that. Time. So Fulton was making all these calls, trying to save this woman who was in the next room. Eventually, he was able to get 5.5 grams of penicillin and saved Ann Miller's life because of it. Which is yet another moment where we see something that occurred that could have shut down the whole penicillin discovery. If Ann Miller had died, I think it would have lost a huge amount of motivation and dedication from the Americans and the Europeans alike. Instead, this probably helped invigorate it as a proof of concept. It was a proof of concept. Meanwhile, research still carried out at the NRL. They were on the hunt for the most effective strain of Penicillium notatum crossogenum, which there are kind of two different names. Crossogenum became the name of the Penicillium strain, but at the time in the 1940s, it was known as Penicillium notatum. They got samples from all over the world, but the savior strain of this whole scenario would come just steps from their lab. Mary Hunt, or Moldy Mary as she became known as, was tasked by Dr. Kenneth B. Raper to go out and find some mold, any mold, any mold would do. She searched high and low and near and far until one day she found a cantaloupe that would house the most powerful strain of penicillium crossogenum. Or Rubens, depending on your ask. You know, fungal classification is just like, it's a whirlwind. But that penicillium, even when it was eons better than Fleming's original strain, could it still be better? I don't know. Can it? Of course it can. And so they used some classical strain improvements, which was a polite way of saying they tortured the microbe until it performed better. I'm going to say what it is. I just don't know how they figured this out. They bombarded it with x-rays, right? Yeah, and a number of other mutagenesis techniques. They pelted the penicillium with every mutagenesis they had, hoping that it would get a colony, just one single colony would do, that would have the right mutation and the right spot to produce even more penicillium than the original strain. 
They tried random mutation with x-rays and ultraviolet radiation and chemicals such as chloromethine, nitrogen mustard, and nitrosoguanidine, which I'm sure are all very carcinogenic and toxic to humans. Yeah. Because this was so random, they didn't have to know the mechanism behind how it worked. They were just playing a quantity game over quality. So they were just sort of shotgun approach over the sniper approach that we typically take today because it's a little bit better for resources and understanding what you're doing. I do like this too because, like you said, nowadays, if you're going to mutate a microbe, you need to know its DNA structure and to be able to manipulate it. Back then, they're just putting a blindfold on and throwing darts randomly to see what will stick. Exactly. And it worked. Mind you, this was 1943, so we're not really saying that they did something wrong. They did what they could do with the scientific knowledge that they had during the time. So 1943, for our other science history buffs, is about a whole decade before Rosalind Franklin, Watson, and Crick put the DNA double helix together and really opened the world up to molecular biology. So they're doing this mutant genesis without really understanding what DNA is. Incredible. And they were able to get more penicillin because of it. Yes. Uh, The exact origin of the strains that would be used by companies such as Pan Labs Inc., SmithKline, Beachman Pharmaceuticals, or Antibioticos SA to develop their own special strains of the industrial production is not well known because there are a lot of strains running around all over the place. But today's literature, which looked a little bit into comparative genomics of all these different strains from all these different places, generally says that they all came from the early derived strain of NRRL. Is that the one that was found on the cantaloupe? Yes. So let's talk about the common mutations that were revealed to increase penicillin production in successful mutated strains. There are three main ones that I'll discuss. And these come from scientific literature by Ferro Francisco called Penicillium Crocigenum, a vintage model with a cutting edge profile in biotechnology published in microorganisms in 2022. So a very recent paper. So they looked at three different main mutations that occurred in the various strains that they had. One was chromosomal rearrangement. They did comparative genomics on the number of the strains, and they found that almost all the rearrangements that occurred were polymorphic across the set of strains, which indicates that chromosomal rearrangements are common in wild population. And apparently there is a preference for regions proximal to genes involved in penicillin biosynthesis. Therefore, many of the genome structural features that predisposed for high penicillin production were already in place in the cantaloupe isolated strain, NRRL1951. I guess that kind of makes sense, only because in the wild, penicillin has to be able to fend off other possible microbes that might be going after a food source. So you want to make sure you can keep the spot for yourself. Exactly. So the second major way that penicillin mutated over the years is through amplification of the penicillin gene cluster. Quite simply, this is a penicillin with more copies of the genes that code for a penicillin. However, more copies doesn't always mean more penicillin. 
but sometimes it does. At a certain point, there is not more penicillin being produced with more copy numbers, but this was an effective way of producing more penicillin in some of the strains. And the final way that we'll talk about is point mutations. These can be small changes in the genes. Often, these small changes can have a large cascading effects. For instance, one pretty prevalent one in high-producing penicillin strain is a point mutation in the velvet complex. The velvet complex was an important role in regulation of development in secondary metabolism, for which penicillin is part of the secondary metabolism of penicillium. So this small change can completely change the gene and its expression and have cascading effects to other portions of metabolism. But Flory, Howard, Heatley, Fleming, Morer, Mary... None of these people knew any of that back then. They had no clue what they were doing. They were just pelting it until it became something that they wanted it to. So we're going to go back to July of 1942. The war is certainly moving on, and so is the research in penicillin. Heatley would end his residency in America almost exactly 12 months after it began and returned home to Oxford. While Flory continued to struggle to get support for the penicillin's team in Oxford, the Americans had made it their number two priority, with number one being America, 1940s. <laughs> what is our number one priority? Uh, winning the war. With? Explosions. <laughs> <laughs> particularly the atom bomb. So number one was the atom bomb and number two was the production of penicillin. So I think this just goes back to our plea to Christopher Nolan. After you're done, you're high on Oppenheimer. Maybe we can create a movie with the number two priority of the Americans during the 1940s, which would be penicillin. I would love that movie. But now comes the part of our story that gets a little bit sad. Really? <laughs> really? <laughs> Little Book of Mormon insert right there. <laughs> I can't complete that sentence. It's just too much. Um. Yeah, so it gets sad, and it makes Flory mad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get it together. Here we go. In August 27, 1942, the London Times picked up the penicillin story. It referenced the Lancet article that Flory published recently. It never referenced Flory or Fleming, which I think is just an absurd thing that you would talk about this great discovery and not the men who discovered it and or women, for which there were some. I mean, there was a bunch of people involved. Yeah, why, why aren't they getting the recognition? Yeah, so no one's name was called out during this London Times article. But it was one of the first times in Europe the media started promoting penicillin and giving it a little bit more of a boost in far as interest to the general public and the industries around. Media attention like this was a fast way to get some funding, and during war times, getting funding and recognition for scientific achievement was impossibly hard. Almrath E. Wright, for whom we haven't talked about at all, was Fleming's boss and a huge cheerleader for Fleming and St. Mary's Hospital. So he saw this article and he wrote back to the paper, writing, uh, You refrained from putting the laurel wreath for this discovery around anybody's brow. He'd go on to say, It should be decreed to Professor Alexander Fleming. And so the media circus began. And a circus is exactly how Fleming viewed it. He'd take the interviews, they'd publish something that stretches the truth of what he said, 
But he felt there was little point in trying to correct them. He was a pretty chill dude. He became the It Man with articles all around Europe commending his great accomplishments. Articles like Miracle from Moldy Cheese, Scottish Professor's Discovery, and The Man of the Week. Fleming would collect these articles and put them in a little scrapbook called Fleming's Myth. So he had this sort of like comical idea about everything, everything that was being published was not true. And he just keep it for his own amusement, thinking that he can't correct what the media had put out there. Which, of course, was great for St. Mary's Hospital and getting funding, which was what Almuth's plan was all along. It was not great for Flory and the Oxford men, who were also trying to get funding. But now it has been, the laurel wreath has been decreed upon the brow of Alexander Fleming. So then they were passed up. Yes. Flory was not so impressed by this media circus. The slightest team was given in the publicity would forever sour his relationship with Alexander Fleming. But Flory also did not want the publicity. He just wanted some funding. He was a scientist first and did not want to give the world's false promises of treatments that may still yet be years down the road. So he tried to avoid being a public facing scientist. He believed at this time that penicillin would revolutionize medicine. He believed one day it would replace sulfa drugs, but at this time, it was still very challenging to produce in high quantities, and he did not want to spread false hope, especially during a time of war. I have to say that this is reminiscent of Robert Koch to me. Because Robert Koch, he eventually tried to develop a vaccine for tuberculosis using the protein tuberculin. And at a conference, he was egged on by, I believe, his superiors to, like, mention it, even though he's like, this isn't ready. And he eventually said to the group, you know, you know, there's some promising results with this research. And then the media took it, ran, and they're like, he discovered the vaccine to cure all tuberculosis. Mm. And it really didn't work out. So it kind of soured a lot of people towards Robert Koch. And he's like, hey, I didn't want to say this. I was kind of forced my hand into saying it. And I did say that there are some promising research results, but I didn't say it is the end all. And the moral of the story, science communication is really hard. And very important. And very important. Furthermore, there was a great deal of scientific politics at play. Flory were admitted to the Royal Society and a great honor for the scientific community during the time. And so the scientific community understood that Flory were the I don't want to say rightful, because I think they all participated a great deal. But the scientific community sort of backed Flory on this discovery of penicillin, while the general public and publicity backed Alexander Fleming. So just to talk a little bit about this Royal Society and what a prestigious honor it is, they usually only admit 10 people each year back in Flory's day. It was only particularly because of the war became a kind of hard thing to admit people science was not happening at the scale that it was prior to the war. Fleming was 17 years older than Flory and had been nominated to go into the Royal Society 14 times and never got it. Wow. So you can see that life is not really setting it up for them to be friends. No. Also, that's like one of the oldest and more prestigious prestigious scientific societies to be a part of, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, no, it's it's an incredible honor for sure. 
Alexander Fleming was up for another opportunity to be admitted in 1943, particularly as the publicity over penicillin came out in the general public. And Flory, who had already been in this royal society, was on the electoral board. He could have made a fuss. Because he did get a right to say yes or no to different people. And he obviously was not a super fan of Alexander Fleming. But he feared being accused of bias, which is 100% true. That it had come from a place of bias. So Flory held his tongue. And in 1943, 80 years ago, Alexander Fleming, on his 15th try, was finally admitted into the Royal Society for his discovery of penicillin in 1929. Thanks to Flory, in part, for holding his tongue, although even if he spoke, who knows if it would have had an effect or not. While the British were struggling with their rations, their scientific politics, and their great struggle of producing enough penicillin to meet the ever-growing demand, the Americans were quickly scaling up their production of the drug. By May 1943, the Americans produced 400 million units of penicillin, enough for 180 people. Still not a great amount, but we're getting there. By the end of that year, 1943, the Americans produced some 20.5 billion units of penicillin. Now we're getting somewhere. Yeah. And by D-Day on June 6, 1944, they produced 100 billion units per month, enough to treat 40,000 cases. That's almost, uh, that's enough to start treating an army. Exactly. So throughout the summer of 1943, Flory and a colleague, Hugh Carnes, went to Africa to see how penicillin would do on fresher wounds. Up until this point, it had been mostly tested on people who were on the verge of death, but not people freshly wounded or at the very beginning stages of infection. This summer, they also discovered penicillin was capable of treating gonorrhea, which was also a major thing for soldiers during the time. And syphilis, but we didn't, we're not there yet. Although I'm sure it wasn't long after gonorrhea, they figured out penicillin could also treat syphilis. So moving along into 1944, Flory had it with Fleming rolling in the preposterous penicillin publicity. He seemed to purposely forgo any mention of the Oxford team. He wrote, The unscrupulous campaign carried out from St. Mary's calmly to credit Fleming with all the work done here. I have sufficient evidence of one sort and another that this is a deliberate and clever campaign, for which he's not wrong, because Almerth wanted this all along. Fleming was being glorified. St. Mary's pockets were filling up, and the people at Oxford were going on notice and were struggling for funding. In June 1944, Alexander Fleming and Flory would receive another honor, the honor of knighthood. Even at first, it seemed the noble committee got caught up in the Fleming myth and it was rumored that they were going to grant the Nobel Prize to Fleming alone and not to Flory and his team. Ooh, that would have been mean, mean. But who will come to Flory's rescue once more? I don't know. John Fulton. See, John Fulton's so important in this story. Fulton and Heatley do not get enough credit. So John Fulton would come to the rescue of Flory once more. He wrote to Stockholm several times on Flory and Shane's behalf, urging them to make sure that if they're going to grant the Nobel Prize for penicillin, for which they should because it's going to save so many lives for the rest of time, that they should also grant it to Flory and Shane, who made considerable improvements on the technique that Fleming had and were the ones actively working on it. Fleming gave up on penicillin for 10 years. He moved on to other things and it 
it was Chain and Flory who resurrected this little mold. And scaled up to the point where it could actually treat a bunch of people. Yes. In 1945, the war was waning. The public interest in penicillin and Fleming were magnifying. Fleming was invited on tours to give speeches all over the world. He brought in a great deal of money for the hospital he called home. But Fleming was not out of fame or glory. He played his part and he played it well. His name was the name and it seemed the only name people wanted to hear in association with penicillin. On several occasions, he did mention Flory and Chain and the Oxford efforts, but it fell on deaf ears. Nobody wanted to hear about Flory Chain and their efforts in Oxford. They wanted to hear about Alexander Fleming. They did not view Fleming as a simple and eccentric microbiologist like a lot of other scientists who knew him did, but a modest and brilliant scientist. The Nobel Prize in Physiology of Medicine in 1904 was awarded jointly to Sir Alexander Fleming, Ernest Boris Chain, and Sir Howard Walter Florey for the discovery of penicillin and its curative effect in various infectious diseases. I feel like they left out an important person in the story. Who? Heatley. Yes, Heatley did not get the Nobel Prize. They determined that his handyman techniques and these apparatus building were not sufficient to be awarded the Nobel Prize. Lame. So that pretty much concludes our story on penicillin and sort of the Flory chain and Heatley's aspect. And of course, our unsung hero of John Fulton as well. But I want to take a moment to talk a little bit more about penicillin and how it works. During the time, the chemical structure of penicillin was quite elusive to Chain. He was never able to figure it out, even though he was a world-renowned chemist and he thought he was in, you know, pretty good at his job. He was not able to ever look at the chemical structure of penicillin. And it was partly due to the fact that he never knew it contained sulfur, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen. Penicillin is a naturally occurring antibiotic that belongs to a class of compounds known as beta-lactam antibiotics. Its chemical structure is quite fascinating. It consists of beta-lactam ring fused to a thiazolidine ring. This core structure is responsible for the antibiotic's unique properties and its ability to inhibit the growth of bacteria. Penicillin is primarily effective against gram-positive bacteria, which have a relatively thin peptoglycan layer in their cell wall. Gram-negative bacteria, on the other hand, have an additional outer membrane that acts as a protective barrier, making them less susceptible to penicillin. However, there are modified forms of penicillin other antibiotics available that can target gram-negative bacteria. Gram-positive bacteria have a relatively thick peptoglycan layer in their cell walls composed of long chains of sugar and amino acids. Transpeptidase enzymes, or penicillin-binding proteins, are responsible for cross-linking these peptoglycan chains to maintain the structure integrity of the cell wall. When beta-lactam antibiotics like penicillin are present, they bind to the active site of these penicillin-binding proteins. This binding is facilitated by the beta-lactam's ring's resemblance to the natural substrates of these enzymes. Once bound, the beta-lactam ring irreversibly inhibits the activity of the penicillin-binding proteins, preventing them from forming crosslinks between the peptidoglycan chains. This causes the weakening of the gram-positive cell wall. 
With the inhibition of the penicillin binding proteins, the bacteria cannot properly construct and maintain their cell walls. This disruption weakens the structural integrity of the gram-positive bacterial cells. The internal pressure exerted by the cytoplasm causes the weakened cell wall to become unstable. Under normal conditions, the bacterial cell wall provides a protection against the osmotic pressure. However, without the ability to reinforce and maintain their cell walls, the weakened gram-positive bacteria become highly susceptible to osmotic lysis. Osmotic pressure causes water to flow into the bacterium, leading to an influx of water that ultimately bursts or ruptures the bacterium, resulting in cell death. It basically drowns. So... There's a small antidote on my part. We had organic chemistry together. And on the final, one of the possible questions was we had to reverse engineer the beta-lactam ring. Wait, really? Yep. Oh, I don't remember that at all. There was two molecules, and I chose the beta-lactam ring, and we had to like go backwards and describe the, the chemical reactions that created it. After the semester was over, I asked the teacher, I'm like, so how did I do with... Uh, that he's like, oh, you're one of the few people that attempted to do the beta lactam ring. I'm like, so did I do it? He's like, oh no, you weren't even close. <laughs> <laughs> so chemistry is not my forte. Mm. So that's a little bit about penicillin, but I want to um, shift gears one last time, and we are almost at the end of this podcast. I promise. I know this is a little bit of a longer one, but per usual, I got real into it and had a number of different resources for which we will link in the show notes. And I just, I, I don't know, I just love this stuff. I love history. I love science. I love penicillin. I love John Fulton, true hero. And penicillin crossogenum, which is the true hero of this whole thing, doesn't get enough limelight at all. So this penicillium crossogenum, the high producing strain found in the cantaloupe, by the myth, the legend, Moldy Mary. And let's talk a little bit about this penicillium strain. It is perhaps the most studied fungi of all time, and quite frankly, has saved more lives than perhaps anything alive or dead or philosophical. We owe so much to this little fungi. Probably your own life, and if not your own life, probably the life of your siblings, your parents, or your best friend. One of those people would not be alive today, I'm sure, without the invention of penicillin. Not invention, the discovery of penicillin. But what other secrets of Penicillium crossogenum have been revealed since the fateful day in 1943 where Penicillium crossogenum entered the world stage? For a long time, it was thought this fungi lacked a sexual cycle. And fungi reproduction is totally complex and um, hard to follow sometimes. So we're just going to look at it at a semi-surface level for now. And in a later podcast, we'll probably do a more deeper dive into the anatomy and reproduction of fungi. Similar to bacteria who do not mate but reproduce via binary fission, some fungi have sexual cycles and are able to mate with each other while others do not. The mating requires a set of specific genes, and until sequencing of the genome, it was not thought penicillium had these genes, but it did, and there are different mating types in this Ascomyces fungi. In a way, sequencing brought about the fungal sexual revolution. <laughs> I like the way you phrase that. <laughs> so sequencing also changed the name of this microbe, for which I've alluded to a couple times. For instance, for the first five or six decades, our hero was called a P. crossogenum. But sequencing changed all of this. Hubracken et al. revealed that both P. crossogenum and RRL1951 and all its derivatives, which are the ones that we use today, and P. notatum uh, and RRL. 
L824 is the strain, Fleming strain, um, which he sent all over the world, uh, should be reclassified as penicillium rubens, which caused quite the hoopla in the fungal taxonomy world because people do not like it when you change things. But of note, Fleming strain and the cantaloupe strain were quite different. Obviously, the cantaloupe strain produced a copious more penicillin and became the progenitor strain for all the other strains that we use today. Also of note, Fleming strain and the cantaloupe strain were of different mating types for which we just discussed. And thus began a whole bunch of people getting very interested in penicillium's sexual habits. They performed a whole lot of experiments trying to cross various strains and seeing what happened in the next generations. But I won't get far too far into this mess as it gets quite confusing and I think requires visuals and not just audio. So you have been spared of that rant. You're welcome. So sequencing also helped to reveal a bit about the mechanisms. How did penicillium create penicillin? And once you figured that out, how can you use this knowledge to make an even more potent strain? Penicillin cluster looks a looks meager, with just three biosynthetic genes. No regulatory genes, no transport genes, no other indispensable or important genes. Nothing else relevant. All naturally occurring penicillins are synthesized from these three amino acids. Three amino edopic acid, L-alpha-AAA, L-cysteine, and L-valine. And there's only a few genes that encode for these enzymes, PCBAB, PCBC, and PEN-DE. These enzymes act on these amino acids to form them into something different, a substance we call penicillin. Okay, so it's a fair bit more complicated than that, but for the purposes of today's little podcast, that's probably enough. If you want more information, I highly suggest reading Francisco Ferreira's paper on penicillium carcinogenum, a vintage model with a cutting-edge profile in biotechnology for which most of this information stems from. But penicillin strains give us much more than just penicillin. They have a whole slew of secondary metabolites that have a wide array of activities for antimicrobial and anti-tumor or anti-quorum sensing as well. Penicillium strains are a treasure trove, an arsenal of secondary metabolites of great importance to biotechnology for which we are still trying to figure out. And with that, Microbial Nation, we will end our episode on penicillin. I do want to say something before we officially end, though. Okay. What's that? So about 15 days ago was the day that the patent of penicillin was approved. All right. And I posted that on subreddit, uh, on Reddit, and someone responded by the name of Dangerous Bill, and they said that penicillin was so precious during World War II that it was transported by armed convoys. My father ran several such convoys in England in 1945-47, right after the war. A shot of penicillin was worth any price on the black market at that time. It was literally life and death. And I just thought that was really cool that someone just reached out and said that. Yeah, that's awesome. And so fascinating. And just another piece of evidence for you, Christopher Nolan. Call me. Call us. Let's chat. Who who said that? Uh, the profile is called the Dangerous Bill. Well, Dangerous Bill, thank you so much for that fascinating little tidbit of your family history. And with that, Microbial Nation, we will officially close out this podcast on penicillin. Next week, you, we will return to your regularly scheduled program where we're doing a deep dive into bioterrorism throughout history. 
I believe we have a couple more podcasts to do in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century before we get to this time period that we talked about today. But we did just want to put this in here so everyone had a new appreciation, let's say, for penicillin and the wonders that it's giving our world. I mean, we had to shout it out. It's the 80th anniversary. And it's Alexander Fleming's birthday. Exactly. Yeah. So if you like today's podcast, go ahead and rate and subscribe to the podcast on anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Consider giving us five stars if you liked the episode. And if you didn't, I don't know what to do. Don't hate us. Maybe give us some, uh, a little bit of feedback. Maybe we missed something that you thought was important, and we'll give it a shout out in a future episode. And we'd like to encourage you to follow us on Instagram for where we go into other little tidbits in microbial history, microbiology, different microbes that we find fascinating at that particular moment. That's on our Instagram, which you can find at microbigals, M-I-C-R-O-B-I-G-A-L-S. So without further ado, feed your microbes. Feed your guts. Make your microbes love you lots. Bye. Bye.